Welcome to Deal Flow. Ryan Ray here, as always, my guest, and I should say my boss, I guess, the, the man who drives me daily and just browbeats me to get things done. The one, the only Tim Kotzman. How's it going, Tim? Uh, it's going well. Happy uh, holidays already. Ryan. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. For those who are not watching or listening, Tim was shaking his head. I think when I was saying he browbeats me, he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't browbeat me. So Tim, maybe do a quick introduction of who you are, what you do, and and uh, we'll get into it from there. Sure. Uh, so my background is in the land uh, portion of energy, oil and gas specifically. So I started my career as a greenfield acquisition land manager, acquiring oil and gas leases easements for pipelines, 2D seismic, uh, mineral purchasing. And then along the way, uh, started a few firms uh, backed by family offices and um, sold deals to those family offices, oil and gas, mineral purchases specifically, um, along with, um, you know, working along the way with uh, institutions that are well-known that got into the space um as things really progressed through the 2008 to mid 2015 2018 kind of time frame both um in natural gas regions such as the Appalachian so Pennsylvania Ohio West Virginia as well as um the Permian basin so West Texas and then southeast New Mexico Lee and Eddy county specifically um did some work down in the Eagleford Shale of South Texas, um, again, with mineral purchasing, and then um, moved up to New York, uh, started raising capital, um, friends and family, and then also accredited investors, and um, buying and selling mineral deals on a longer time frame, not just flipping deals per se, but holding them for cash flow and then exiting at a opportune time just looking at the markets and how they ebb and flow and then that kinds of kind of brings us to present day where we're raising for our fifth fund um from accredited investors and qualified purchasers um looking to raise the offering amount that's registered is 10 million dollars and we're probably about 10 percent of the way there uh, on that so we'll continue raising for that over the next three to six months and then deploy that capital. And in the meantime, you know, always looking for deal flow as far as any oil and gas mineral deal, whether we take it down for our own account or for one of our series of funds. Okay, great. So let's talk about the uh, the capital side in a second. But you know, we've talked on the podcast in the first few episodes mainly about M and A transactions. And of course, um, you can hear if you follow oil and gas news. You know, acreage getting swapped and, and stuff and large M&A uh, deals. But for what you're doing, there's a ton of stuff in the mineral space uh, that you can buy, ways you can get in. Maybe super focused uh, for those who aren't familiar. They don't they don't know anything about oil and gas. They go, oh, I got oil and gas under the ground. I can buy it. You're buying, in practical terms, you're buying what and why is that of interest to you? Definitely. So we're buying specifically, and the definition varies from state to state, whether they are considered oil, oil 
and gas rights, uh, meaning oil and natural gas rights, or mineral rights. Um, the legal definition varies from state to state. Um, and oil and gas or minerals would be that specific uh, right to property in the bundle of sticks where people are very familiar with surface rights. When you buy your house, you own your backyard, your front yard, your side yard, and the property that your house is on. So those are the surface rights. So that's what we may deal with um, with a surface pipeline easement issue um, or project. Um, you know, timber rights when maybe you own some woodland and it gets select cut or, um, you know, you're developing it from time to time to uh, optimize it. So you'd own the right to those trees and whatever you could do with it as far as timber rights, air rights, um, maybe more in more um, urban areas. And then um, coal rights. You know, some people, especially in the Appalachian um, or different coal regions might be familiar. But to your point, yeah, if someone's not really directly in a shale region, um, Oklahoma, Texas, North Dakota, um, where they themselves have been approached um, for to, to sign an oil and gas lease, or maybe they inherited an oil and gas lease um, on family property or you know, if they don't run into someone in the industry, whether it's a land manager or a petroleum engineer or a geologist. Um, yeah, it's kind of this niche uh, industry of land rights, mineral rights within oil and gas that, um, as I have the opportunity to speak with folks in, I mean, really had the pleasure of working with people in on the capital side from California to Chicago, to Maine, to Florida, to Texas. <laughs> um, and, you know, in California, a lot of individuals are more um, familiar with venture capital or technology. And if they're not in an oil or gas region, they just kind of didn't know that it existed. And, um, you know, lots of different analogies that we can, tried to use to explain it as far as, you know, like a rental property, but, you know, the wells do come on strong and then uh, kind of decline on a ski slope. But why we would be interested in them is as we're kind of chasing these operators around, um, seeing where they have filed of record in the county courthouse, hey, we are um, have what they call a declaration of pooling. We've, we've unitized this 100 acres or this 600 acres and um, it again varies from state to state, but in many states, when they say, hey, we have recorded that we intend to drill in this area, um, and this is us going through the permitting process, they have two years on the clock in many cases in order to drill or that permit will expire. So that's our first public notice um, of activity in an area. And based on the engineering and the, the fact that the core of the core, as we call it in these areas where there has been development, there is a record of production. So there may be marginal wells, there may be gushers, <laughs> um, but we kind of have a range of what we think the wells will do. And if it's, we have some sort of what we call line of sight um, where we feel like, 
one or several wells may be developed within the next six months to a year or two. That's really what we're focusing on in order to um, purchase a property, acquire a property that is already subject to an oil and gas lease and is going to be developed in the near term. We can collect the oil or natural gas royalty payments based on the current commodity price that are paid from owning that property. And then if they like that area and they come back and they permit additional wells to be drilled at a later time, maybe a year or two down the road, or th- um, and maybe they'll come back every one, every one or two years and continue to drill a, a few wells, that's where we can um, enter and exit the process um, where we can enjoy the royalty cash flow from one or several wells. And then when we look to sell the property, uh, either by itself or divesting an entire portfolio, we can say, hey, um, the firm that we sell the portfolio to can then underwrite those additional wells that have been permitted but haven't yet been um, drilled and turned in line. So that's why it's attractive to us. Yeah. And so kind of kind of the the strategy, if you will. Yeah. So make sure I follow along. Some producer, whether it's Exxon or someone we never heard of, they go out and they they, they find an area that they think is advantageous. Um, you're not ready to go in just yet because it might not be advantageous because they're like anyone else to get things wrong. And then they start drilling. And once you've kind of seen, there's ways you get these records um, that the wells are producing and kind of fits your thesis. Then you say, okay, we want to go buy the acreage from whomever owns it. So it could be the guy that's right on top of it. It could be someone across the country, but someone somewhere owns the, those mineral rights, those acres. So you're going buying it from them because you know, if Ryan owns it, in this case, you call Ryan up, you buy from Ryan. Well, now Tim owns it, but the thing that Tim really wants is the lease that's attached to it, which means that at some point within two years or so, they're going to go drill, and you can kind of already know, okay, if they do drill in this area like they're supposed to, um, then it's going to cash flow. Or maybe you bought bought it and they've already started drilling. So so you're, you've kind of hedged yourself into a realm that it, like you, you're, you've avoided the, 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 the risk of a dry hole because you know what the field will do. Is that, is that kind of a good summary? Yeah, it's a great summary. And in fact, it hits on the reality that uh, it doesn't have to be an undeveloped property that we're acquiring. It could be a currently producing uh, property where we look at the check stubs and we make an offer based on discounting that existing cash flow. Um, because if it's, you know, that's even more de risked um, from uh, the standpoint of we don't have to guess whether it's going to be a a really well producing uh or a marginal uh development so yeah i think sometimes uh some investors or some landowners buyers and sellers get this idea in their mind that it's one or the other you have to sell all 100 acres or none of it which isn't the case or that we're trying to buy something that's completely undeveloped um, and that we wouldn't want to purchase something that's that's currently producing. So um, we can buy one acre, we can buy a hundred acres, we can buy something whether it's producing or non-producing. So that really is uh, not just unique in that some people have never heard of it, but very unique in that um, you know if we are looking to put ten million dollars to work, we can buy you know a portfolio of a thousand acres, or if we're trying to put a million dollars to work, we can buy a portfolio of a hundred acres. Um, and these interests, especially in certain areas, are so um, 
severed because of um, either family uh, properties being diluted in shares as families grow larger through the generations or for other reasons. Um, it's just a very unique way to um, not have to put a certain amount of capital to work or, or be limited um, because there are hundreds of thousands of individual mineral owners across the nation. And one thing that you, you said there, of course, if you follow the news about oil and gas, you'll, you'll hear this term uh, decline, you know, decline, decline rate and the curve rate and all, all this stuff about these shell wells, they, they ramp up and they, they, they drop down pretty quick. Most time we talk about deal flow, buying stuff, acquiring stuff, you're looking for stuff because it's going to go up in value, but here the wells are going down. So why is it advantageous to go buy something that's going to produce less than it once was? It once was. Great question. So, um, really, partly goes back to us collecting uh, royalty payments based on the wells that are currently being developed, and then if we hold it on a long enough time frame, the operator may drill additional wells, where you know, instead of one well producing, if there's two or three or five or 10 wells producing on a certain property, um, you have that staggered and overlapping cash flow over time. And again, um, in the scenario that at well three or well five or well six, we look to divest of the property. Um, we're really buying and selling it um, during that development life cycle. So we can, um, you know, if we, have our capital back in five years, let's say, and then we sell the property um, because you're able to underwrite additional development that's not quite turned in line yet. Then let's say we sell the property for what we bought it for, then that's, you know, targeting a, a 2X in five years as an example. And um, that's, um, you know, reasonable from an investment standpoint. It's attractive to to a lot of investors. But it's also a long enough time frame that if someone has 100 acres or they have 20 acres, they want to sell a quarter of it just to take some risk off the table or because they have another need um, for capital, then we're able to be an outlet for them and really turns out to be a uh, an opportunity for both sides. And one of the things I like about this space is unlike buying a your rental property or uh, stuff like that or, or a business or whatever, you do have some risk, which we're going to talk about. If something goes terribly wrong and oil leaks all over the ground or if there's an explosion on the well site, that you're not in that part of the acquisition process, right? So you just own land that someone's sucking it out of the ground and they're paying you for it. All the the risk for environmental or uh, work labor uh, damages, stuff like that, you, you're two or three levels away from that. So your real risk, as I understand it, is, you know, um, you know price fluctuation um, or they abandon the well for some reason what are your risks? Because you don't have those traditional risks, like with a rental property, the house, you know, there's a hole in the wall. You got to pay to go fix this. You don't have to pay for those kind of things. So what are your risks here? So I guess I'll start by saying, um, you know, we certainly internally um, being in the industry for about 15 years um, do have um, know the risk profile. We do disclose the risk profiles in the private placement uh, risk factors that are, you know, number maybe a dozen pages or more, certainly more than several pages of, of risk factors from, as you said, if the well uh, doesn't produce, if it's shut in, 
Um, we had a well um, where we received a $1 per year shut-in payment, I believe from Exxon, in, 20, in April or May of 2020 for obvious reasons. Um, so there are, uh, you know, many, many risks um, that are disclosed to our limited partners when we do fund projects. Um, but the operational risks are not um, the side of the business that we're in, uh, to your point. So um, the two variables that we do contend with are uh, development timing, when are they going to drill the wells and produce them, and uh, commodity price. So what is the price at the wellhead um, of oil and of natural gas at any given time uh, throughout you know, for each month that that's producing? Yeah, and that so I guess that's kind of an interesting risk because that's the one thing you can't control, right? So you can improve safety measures and mitigate risk on on something, but this is really the one thing that you just can't control. You know, if the Saudis and Russians and Chinese do something over here or the US overproduces over there, like you really so you're really at 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 um you have an advantage that your risk is not something um safety related or or construction related, but then the, the flip side is that the risk is these big global global macroeconomic things that are really outside of your your control. So if you're sitting here, you go, man, yeah, it's interesting. But how do I how do I know that getting into this space, uh, looking for deals in this space, or investing with someone like you in this space is fits my investment portfolio, my my investment thesis? What is it that you see with investors that you let you work with, or uh, when you decide to get in space, like why this over some other asset class? Yeah, I guess without going into the exact return profiles, um, you know, on on a, a marginal deal versus a, a home run deal, um, it's attractive because it it could be, um, you know, double or more what someone might see in a, a traditional real estate, residential real estate, or you know, residential multifamily strip mall sort of um, return in traditional real estate. So real estate. Um, it's also interesting because uh, no one knows what's going to happen later today or tomorrow. But um, you know, when you look at the dynamics globally, and you see OPEC, and you see uh, one thing I think is very interesting is you know we do have a strategic uh, oil reserve here in the United States. Uh, we do not have a strategic natural gas reserve. Um, we can drill more wells, but we don't have that that reserve that we can strategically or politically, <laughs> uh, you know, dip into, so to speak. Um, so, I mean, as far as um, someone's investing uh, appetite, thesis, outlook, risk tolerance, I mean, it's certainly an individual personal decision. Um, I enjoy because it's such a, a small niche industry, you know, just educating and talking to people about um, what the risks and the opportunities are in the space. And um, again, we don't know what the price of oil or gas is going to be later today, but with OPEC, with um, the fact that if the price does uh, go low because of uh some worldwide outbreak, you know, these operators are shutting in wells and, and, you know, I just, 
historically, I'd, I'd just be surprised based on the historical data if oil for any extended period of time is really outside of that 70 to to $100 range. And certainly that'll go up over time due to inflation. Um, but, um, you know, you look a couple decades ago and oil was 40 50 $60. And you look now and it's $70, $80. <laughs> Just doesn't seem to, to uh, on a long enough time scale, change that much in the same way that the Fed targets 2% inflation. Well, the 108-year average inflation rate ending in 2021 is 3.24%. So... It's just interesting what you hear in the media and what grabs headlines versus what the really long um, history will tell you about inflation or the price of any commodity. Okay. And so you founded Jubilee, CEO there now, um, on Fund 5, correct? Fund number 5, yep. We're raising capital and then we'll deploy that for Fund 5, correct? Right. And so... You know, from your we talk about deal flow, you're looking for, I guess, deal flow on two sides, right? So you're looking to go acquire stuff, but you're also looking for people to come and invest alongside in your funds. Correct. Yep. Always uh, looking for deal flow and looking to develop new relationships um, with landowners, with other mineral managers, um, and then, yeah, establishing relationships with accredited investors, qualified purchasers, family offices. And, um, you know, from time to time, institutions, you know, we may make sense to partner together on the capital side or on the deal side, just depending on what the opportunity is. So from an investor standpoint, um, you kind of talk, talk about some of the, the risk and stuff, but there's, you know, these are people who are accredited only. Is that is that what you're doing right now? Correct. Yep. The current offering is open to accredited investors um, and qualified purchasers. So, um, yeah, that is who um, we're registered to uh, do business with right now for this current uh, fund. Okay. So we're sitting here 10 years from now. You you, you said that there's kind of this uh, talk about inflation and um, oil and gas prices and stuff, you know, where, where are you at? Where's Jubilee at? Are we on fund 27, fund 10? Do you expect things to increase uh, more funds is one a year, two a year, kind of a good pace for you guys. What, what are you, what are you looking to do over the next decade or so? Yeah, I think we want to continue being strategic um, with both deal flow and capital. So, you know, 10 years from now, maybe we're on fund 12 or fund 15. But um, the trend seems to be that with as we continue to develop relationships, raise capital and execute on these fund vehicles, um, the amount of capital we're raising is larger. So if we raise you know a certain amount, it may take us a year or two um, or more to deploy that capital. So we wouldn't necessarily be um you know, raising or, or doing a separate fund vehicle once or twice a year. Uh, I think the the numbers of fund five versus fund 12 will probably slow down um, as we raise, you know, similar or larger amounts of capital and then thoughtfully put that to work. But I see this as something that is um, 
certainly has the historical track record and you know even with um alternate renewable sources of energy something that will continue to be um you know something that has a position in the marketplace for you know well over the next one to two decades but um you know i certainly think over the next five to ten years that's uh something we can keep on building slow and steady what's been the biggest lesson you've learned or most surprising lesson maybe going from the in the field side going out and kind of doing it uh to being your own you know having your own fund being your own fund manager uh, raising capital what, what's been the biggest shift there for you i think the biggest lesson uh it's a great question by the way i think um at least what comes to top of mind is um you know some things that are, are on the deal side and the the capital side because it's just business and it's just life in general uh, whether it's professional or personal is communication and consistency so whether it's negotiating with a seller on the deal side or um you know not just raising capital but investor relations and and communicating it's um really having a system in place to be consistent where um if you're going to send out an update you know i'm sending it out on the same frequency the same schedule um, on a consistent basis so that uh, people don't need to uh wonder oh is it going to be on this day or is it going to be on that day um, so just clear communication and consistency and managing some of that so for example uh, some of the wells are or not some of them, all of the wells, <laughs> whether they're natural gas or oil, are on this steep decline curve that looks like a ski slope. So um, some quarters are better than other quarters from a cash flow distribution royalty um, payment standpoint. So to the extent that it makes sense, um, you know, I try to be thoughtful about, you know, if we have a huge quarter, maybe we'll distribute, you know, a significant percentage, but not a hundred percent of that and try to smooth it out at least a little bit. So it doesn't um, feel like this bungee cord up and down <laughs> quarter to quarter from the investor standpoint. So um, communication and consistency, I think as humans, we all enjoy <laughs> being in a relationship with somebody who's consistent. Um, and to the extent that that's practicable, I think that's really important. Okay, jubileerealty.com still the best place to send people to. Anywhere else you want us to connect uh, connect you with the listeners at? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, and yeah, jubileerealty.com. Um, yeah, all great places to uh, connect. Okay. Well, Tim, it was great to have you on. Always good talking to you, friend, and we'll talk to you soon, brother. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you.